0: Hello, and welcome to another version of The Work. The Work is a podcast that my good friend Gina Killian and I do every week, where we talk about the world of work in ways that are not the usual push and pull in these sorts of podcasty kinds of things. Um, It's it's a great show. If you haven't listened before, this is going to be a particularly good one. Uh, We've got my good friend, and Jean's near neighbor, Michael Canisto, who is a long-term player in the recruiting world, he's currently the global head of something or other. Um, um, but but we have Michael with us today because because he's got some points of view about work and creativity that are not the normal fare, and and um, really looking forward to spending time in the conversation. So, Michael welcome. You want to take a quick moment and introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm Michael Canisto. I run a think tank called Mindemic Lab, which is focused mainly on scenario planning, war gaming, future of work kind of uh, concepts, and providing insights into into possible futures. We don't predict the future, but we provide insights into possible futures for organizations to um, be future focused. And that's mainly what I do, And I guess we'll talk about some other things here in a moment as well, some of the things I do in my spare time,
0: so let's see if we can find the bridge. so so, so you do this scenario planning, future gazing kind of work, and you have a disciplined approach to doing that. But you also have um, a series of other interests that inform the work. and i've I've always been kind of amazed at, um, how broad your interests are. In pr- in particular, you have a dressmaking hobby.
1: Tell us about that. I do. I, uh, I It was a few years ago, I found myself uh, head of recruiting for a big fashion business, and it kind of occurred to me one day that I didn't know anything about fashion, <laughs> which didn't necessarily prevent me from being a good TA leader. But it bothered me a little bit. And I was working in New York, I was literally in the fashion district. So it didn't take long for me to find places where I could take classes, either during lunchtime or after work. So I started, I took um, a draping class, and I took a sewing class. And I took, um, I learned pattern making. But um, where this is headed is at one point, I took a fashion drawing class. And there was a, a, a project that was due um, kind of at the end of the semester or end of the class. And sort of my my interest being where they are, interested in cultures and organizations and groups of people, um, similarities and differences, I thought, well, what if I did my final project on um, how Western fashion influenced Japanese fashion pre and post-war? That'd be kind of interesting, I thought. And so I started doing image searches and looking through books and trying to find out what people were wearing uh, in the in the U.S. and in Japan at the time. And as I was looking in Japan, I kept coming across people wearing kimonos. Well, that makes sense. I mean, they've been <laughs> wearing them for a long time. And I really wasn't interested in kimonos at all. It, it just didn't feel right for me. I had issues, concerns about cultural appropriation. There was plenty of other things for me to be interested in. And so I sort of clicked past those. And I found lots of pictures of Japanese women in the forties and fifties and sixties in Western uh, style clothes. But the thing that was kind of the moment for me was I would run across lots of pictures where imagine there's a random neighborhood in Tokyo and there's two women meeting, obviously friends, you know, one's got a bag of groceries. One has a baby and one's wearing a mini skirt and one's wearing a kimono. And it kind of made me pause and realize that, the two sort of lived together for a long time and still do. I'd never thought of it that way. I'd kind of compartmentalized fashion, thought about fashion. And so what ended up happening is, as as I thought about, as I looked through the lens that that, that gave me, as I looked through, you know, women wearing quote unquote Western fashions in Japan during that era, I realized they were heavily influenced by kimonos, the color, the patterns, the way they draped, the way they were cut. I never really n- noticed that before. And then in the opposite direction, I realized that the Western clothes began to influence the kimono, the kimono fabric. And so I realized that I probably needed to spend a little more time learning about the kimonos. And in order to do that, I sort of (laughs) continued to do dressmaking and do designs and just sort of found myself in this place where I'm really enjoying sort of reproducing design aesthetics from that era and and as you mentioned um using upcycled or recycled kimonos that's interesting
0: so so i want to pick at something that you just said there which is which is you, you talked about two kinds of fashion occupying the same space and influencing each other and that reminds me of the transition we're going through right now as a culture moving from industrial ways of thinking to whatever the hell the next thing is um, um, and we're kind of in the middle of the mud and the whatever the hell the next thing is um, uh, do you think Using the kimono as a metaphor, do you think that the kimono lasts through the transition or is there a way that it's overcome by the by the new force?
1: Well, the way I think about this is um, if someone appeared to you, uh, sort of materialized in your living room and declared that they were a time traveler from centuries ahead, centuries ahead uh, uh, a thousand years ahead. And they said, Oh, Oh, you're John Sumser. How funny. Do you know people still buy the product that you sell? In other words, how many products, how many things can you think of that people spend discretionary funds on? It's not, it doesn't feed them. It doesn't clothe them. It doesn't shelter them. People still buy kimono a thousand years later. So I'm putting my money on <laughs> the, the the kimono persevering, but I also think it has probably lots of lessons. Why the kimono? What, what other piece of clothing? What other item that could you can you think of that people spend money on? That's had the the staying power of the kimono. So I think the kimono will prevail, but through creativity, um, technological adaptation, um, responsiveness to social um, uh, trends, um, I think it will. I think it's going to be around for another thousand years.
0: So, so in your work, you um, you have started using kimonos as um, um, a baseline, as a starting point for doing things, and you're actually in the business of transforming kimonos. That's right. Um, um, and so, so let's move that last question about the kimono as a metaphor for social change into the work that you're doing, where you are um, changing the way that a kimono manifest itself um um, does that spell the end of the kimono or is that just a way of giving it new life
1: i think it's a way of giving it new life i mean there's a very practical component to it um, which um as probably most everyone knows there's a real um top heavy demographic distribution in Japan. I think I read a statistic where the highest it's the highest percentage of an elderly population of any any country in the world. And so it's actually creating a real challenge, which is to say that, you know, uh, someone who was um, married in the 1960s or 1970s was probably gifted a kimono. It wouldn't be uncommon for a woman to have 50 or 100 kimonos, just a middle class, typical uh, uh, married person. They're, they're kept very carefully. They're not washed frequently. They're stored in a special cabinet. And when, they pa- when these women pass away, as they're passing away at an, at an unprecedented rate, no one wants to throw grandma's kimonos away. And so there's been this sort of trend where there are these resellers and recycle, recycle kimonos. By the way, let me just say these aren't historical pieces or any sort of significance at all. These are just kimono, kimonos. And so in a way, it's like, what do you do with them? um they're just growing at this extraordinary rate and so you're seeing not just me but others finding ways to repurpose the fabric to use that fabric but also clearing the way there's still new designs and new kimono uh, people who make new kimono they've it's kind of solving several problems at once if that makes sense
2: we live in a disposable society so so you've you've called out the enduring quality of the kimono and something that has been around at least a thousand years. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to pretend to be. Um, What does this tell us about what we keep, what we dispose of, what we repurpose as we look at the workplace?
1: I think about that a lot. It's funny, what, that first moment when I um, first saw those pictures of those two women, again and again in different variations, two women, right, talking, one in a one in a Western style clothing, uh, outfit and one in a kimono, is it sort of made me realize that as I watched, again, as I mentioned earlier, as I watched the two influence one another, I think the reason the kimonos endured, and I think it's something that you see in organizations that have staying power, is they acknowledge this notion that their culture or their ways of working or the dynamics in the culture are flexible and they're influenced by other forces. So the way this manifests for me is I've definitely known of other cultures where there's sort of this origin story, this origin story that the leaders want to create where the founder was a perfectly good person. He always did good things. He never did anything wrong. He never hired bad people. And it's sort of this um, immaculate conception origination origin story Right. And I've worked for companies that have things they really wish people would forget. But but this idea that the kimono, it just never went to, no one ever stepped in and said, that's not a kimono, only this can be a kimono. And I think the idea of utilizing creativity and again, technological advances and acknowledging that there is no culture that exists as an entity unto itself, it's always influenced by other cultures, allows for the staying power and it actually makes the organization stronger. So let's
0: move that to the construction of a kimono, because there are, there are aspects of the way a kimono is built that, um, that have the potential for guiding the design of organizational culture. So let's talk about, let's talk about um, how you take a kimono apart when you go to
1: reuse it. Sure it's, uh, there's a lot here. So I'll I'll clip along quickly because it's really, it's a really profound experience. So here I am realizing that the thing that I didn't want to spend any time on, I needed to learn about it. I needed to understand a kimono and in the fashion industry or in fashion, when you want to understand a garment, you take it apart. So I found a kimono, probably an old sixties, maybe wedding gift kimono. It arrived from Japan, folded up and I laid it out of my workspace and began to, to work on it. Well, the first thing That I remember is as I unfolded it, I was hit with this extraordinary olfactory, um, like cord, right? And it wasn't just mothballs or cedar. It wasn't like that. There was incense, there was tobacco smoke, there was scented face powder, there were floral perfumes that were in style in Tokyo at the time. There was not a very nice smell. The armpits of the kimono were stained. And I always say it was the closest thing that I can imagine to having a ghost in the room with me. Um, It was totally unexpected. But again, based on where they come from, this woman probably came, took her kimono off at the end of the day. She folded it up. She put it in the tissue paper. She put it in her cabinet, having absolutely no idea that that would be the last time she ever wore it and that she wouldn't actually be around for much longer. So so that kind of set the mood, right? This is actually kind of an important. I, I think I better like close the door and wash my hands and like give this the proper uh, respect. And so I tell the story a lot. And so um, the kimono is laid flat, there's a lining that's attached to it, and they're stitched together. And so the most unglamorous part of fashion is you get your seam ripper, and I start picking picking a seam you pick a seam you tug the fabric apart you pick pick the seam and when you're like me and you're impatient you pick a stitch and then you give it kind of a tug and sometimes an extra stitch will pull through the holes and give you a little more kind of double your efficiency and then if you're really like me after about 20 minutes of it you give it a yank (laughs) and so I gave this I picked a stitch and I gave it a yank and I heard this like oh heartbreaking rip this giant tearing sound, and I thought, oh, I've done it. I, i've I've torn the garment. I can't believe I did this. And so I started looking, well, where's the tear? I don't, I don't know, I don't see a tear. And it as I realized then as I learned later, the way a kimono was put together is the s- stitching is weaker than the fashion fabric or the outer fabric. so that if it gets snagged on something or if someone's standing on it or if it gets, you know someone's you know someone is standing on your kimono and you walk away, when it falls apart, it's the stitches that sort of sacrifice themselves as a way of preserving the fabric. And I thought, isn't that isn't that fascinating? And so now, when I take apart a kimono, I just grab it and rip, and it always comes apart. The also I mentioned before about the lining, you know, a lot of them are kind of they have they they have an olfactory experience. It isn't always positive, and they're stained with sweat or there's you know, oil, cooking oil or something. And and so the lining kind of protects the fabric and it can be changed out more or less easily. So the construction actually has lessons, I think, also in that it's sort of designed with its own internal self-protection mechanisms, right? And so again, when I think about how does this relate to organizations, there's always this, you know, mysterious like we've decided to change our product line or here's a new logo and here's new slogans and there's sort of this internal organizations that allow for healthy dialogue about actually maybe this isn't a great idea or this doesn't feel right to us long-termers i think they tend to have more staying power or lasting power but this whole idea of the kimono it doesn't need there's no um maintenance you know schedule or there's no place you have to take it it sort of protects itself and i always thought that was an interesting metaphor for um for organizations as well
0: so so, so run with that a little bit if you if you were thinking about organizational culture and trying to make it flexible um so that the fabric stays intact while the stitching can be modified um what what does that look like? I know I know you know part of part of the wonder of this story is what happens to people who are good at recruiting as they get absorbed by the world that they recruit right? and, and that transforms people. And so you've been through that process a bunch of times. You've seen a bunch of different companies in a bunch of different industries. How do you make an organization flexible so that when you go to rip the stitches out and reconfigure the kimono, you get a organization that's vital on the other side of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, where I think where I've seen it go both ways is, again, someone will propose, hey, we're going to change the the like like some senior leader, right? We're going to change the logo, we're going to change the schools where we send the where we send the MBA, you know, the high potentials, or we're going to change the product line. And people always respond to change. Like there's always like, no, we can't change this. But I think the organizations that I've seen where people seem happiest or have been around the longest are ones where leaders will not just react and say, you know, just be quiet. Just, it's just change. You're just reacting to the change. We're not really interested in what you have to say, but the ones who kind of stay with it a little while and genuinely seek out, um, seek out the, uh, the things that are troubling the population. it's that simple, really, and it's not just well, here, we sent you a three question survey, fill it out, and I don't want to hear from you anymore. It's the companies where we've all been around them where the you know people seem to feel like they have a a relationship with the leaders or the leaders are visible or they're walking around or they're friends with them. Um, they're just the the company, the the long timers um the people who are all in at the company actually have really valuable perspective. And I've always been shocked at some companies, their willingness to engage and welcome and invite those people's opinions into the boardroom. And I've seen, I've been amazed at the degree to which in an age where we can talk virtually like this for absolutely no cost, um, that people are absolutely soundly 100% opposed to hearing anything that contradicts the new direction. So so let's let's tug at that. Let's tug at that thread a little bit. God,
0: this is this is wonderful. We're going to go into metaphor land here. Um so so I think one of the things that happens in organizations is that the more successful the leader is, the more likely they are to be surrounded by people who insulate them from the truth. Right. And and there's this there's this loop, this fascinating loop that that means that in order to successfully lead an organization, you have to increasingly believe that you are immortal and infallible, and the organization tends to harden around you to reinforce that view, right? So, so the emperor um, is always naked, but is always surrounded by people who are admiring his new clothes. Um, how do you inhibit that? With a design that um, is flexible, like the like the design of a kimono
1: well so when I started when I sort of began to have really strong feelings about these garments and try to think of how I could incorporate them and honor them and still allow them to stay together, so I think I might have mentioned before uh, in an early, you know in a, another conversation that one of my goals, if I'm making something new out of a kimono, is to utilize. The fabric of one kimono. That's kind of an ongoing project of mine as I'm just doing pattern designing patterns for items of clothing that are made from the fabric of one kimono. And I also try to keep the the lining with them. I use the lining as a lining for whatever I'm making, right? And so there's this sort of integrity that I try to preserve because I believe that the you know the, the fabric has stayed together this long, it should stay together in its next life. So as I began to get more collect more kimono. I began to see kind of evidence, I think, of what you're, what you might be talking about, which is I'm used to like these really nice silk kimonos. And then I got one in and it just didn't feel like any other kimono that I'd had before. The, the, the fabric was real stiff and it was brittle. And then there were a couple that was made, that were made of the same fabric and they were kind of in these sort of basic colors. And I didn't know any, obviously, I didn't know anything about it. I'm not in any way an expert or even barely knowledgeable. But I, Reach out to someone who explained to me that this was a particular silk that was developed about a hundred years ago. And it was developed so that women who didn't have a lot of money could wear a silk kimono. It's actually made of silk, but it's the leavings, the leftovers, the stuff you throw away when you make really nice silk. And it's sort of turned into silk but it's definitely doesn't have the same quality. So if you think of the, it was a technological innovation. And if you think of the three-legged stool of, you know, speed, cost, and quality, these things are, it's really easy to make. It's really cheap to make, but the quality isn't great. One of the things I love about it is it looks, the images look kind of pixelated because the weaving doesn't come together quite right. And when you look closely, things don't match up. It's kind of got this fuzzy pixelated characteristic to it. So this was a moment where if there was a very top-down command and control culture, the kimono king, <laughs> the kimono queen would have said, no way are you going to compromise the product, the integrity of our product by putting this cheap inversion out there. And we're certainly not going to endorse it or have anything to do with it. But that's not what anyone did. And as a matter of fact, it gave new life to the kimono because it allowed, because it was so cheap and easy to make, there were. This is where season, you know, seasonal fashions came into play with the kimono. Hey, coming this fall, make sure to get a yellow kimono. That's what all the cool, cool girls will be wearing. And so again, what would have been a really easy thing to reject and say, absolutely not. We're not making cheap silk kimonos. They embraced it because it is what it is. And that actually breathed um, new life into the kimono. So, so the point being, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, instead of stamping out something, that doesn't look at all like it belongs um, in the sort of corporate tenure strategy, probably there's people in the organization who would be able to say, actually this could fill a niche that you don't know anything about, and it could actually make the organization go stronger. Sure,
2: new audience development, we call it in marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and John, I think you might be on mute.
0: So let's go to the next step. Um, um, you have as the heart of your business, a practice helping companies imagine the future. Um, talk about how the business of helping companies imagine the future is like kimono design right because because what you're talking about is a method for making companies more flexible and protecting the core fabric while allowing organizations to adapt to the next hurdles it's it's
1: yeah, it's I, I find a lot of crossover there as I think about that as well. So I mean, from a really practical sort of detailed perspective, if you sit down and you look at what can I make from a kimono, a single kimono? I mean, it's constructed in a very uniform way. I mean, you're gonna sort of, when you take one apart, the pieces will all look more or less the same. But I mean, this might be a little too detailed, but the the standard fabric bolt of, a, of the standard bolt size of a fabric, of kimono fabric is actually really narrow. And if you were to go down to a fabric store, it would be much, much wider. And so that's a huge constraint. What can you make from fabric that's like 13 inches wide? Not a lot. And so I think me and many, many others have figured out, well, just because you, you I'm trying to think of how to say this, it, there's ways to join those, hide the seams, accentuate seams that nor, aren't normally seen, for example, in a sport coat going down the, you know, the middle of, the, of each of the sides that allows you to be successful and, and make something that's really nice out of it. In other words, helping organizations sort of step out and say, well, this is the way we always hire college kids. This is the way we always um, move into other parts of the world. Um, we're sort of up against the wall. There's There's no solution to this problem. Sometimes either in constructing a garment or planning a college recruiting strategy, it's sort of stepping out and thinking of doing things in a totally different way. So for example, we did a scenario planning event around college recruiting, and we were sort of thinking about you know, I remember brainstorming with the group and saying, what are the thing? what are, here are some pieces of data that you could get from a college interview, and I want you to rank them on least, like least useful to most useful. And it was like, what school did they go to? What was their grade point average? Um, did their parent, you know, how important is their parent in <laughs> the organizational structure working its way up to ability to recover from failure, ability to, uh, be creative on the spot, um, ability to have, uh, other skills that are not directly related to the, to the business, uh, not related to the business. And what we did is everyone agreed that knowing what the grade point average and where they went to school is, has no predictive ability whatsoever. To how successful they'll be as a long-term employee, but seeing how they recover from failure, um, how they take feedback, ways that they uh, exhibit creativity was really predictive. And so one potential possibility for future um, college recruiting that we came up with in that particular event was imagine a Broadway audition. And uh, we had um, a student who was who was a theater major and she talked about, she kept using this phrase, two songs and a monologue, two songs and a monologue. And we're like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, when you audition for Broadway, you sing two songs and you do a monologue. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm ahead of recruiting. I, I know what that means. You sing a song from the show you're auditioning for, right? And she went, no, you don't do that. You sing songs that show where directionally the energy that you think the show is going to have or what you think the part should have. Um, You you pick songs that show kind of the energy that you would bring to the show. And that's how you audition for Broadway. And so anyway, it was this real departure of this idea where let's find kids who only have 3.5s and above and only went to the target school, as opposed to here's a room with a bunch of whiteboards and, you know, knickknacks and gadgets. And what can you come away with in, in a half a day? What, you know, what, which, which person would you rather hire?
2: I, I love this and, and uh, you know, I've been kind of sitting at the sidelines here thinking about creativity and thinking about thinking out of the box. Uh, you know, certainly GPA and, you know, what university you went to, that's all very tangible. We can all take that data. Those are happy data points that we can plug into something else. Determining how someone recovers from failure. Um, which I would argue, and this is a topic for another day, of course, you know, when you're talking about someone that young, (laughs) we have to be forgiving because they're really early stage in their journey. But, but this goes back to your, your kimono metaphor, and that is uh, remaking, you know, this, this, this durable fabric and remaking it. And, and And you were talking about real workplaces and and companies that last and what their qualities are. So what is their fabric and what is their ability to remake themselves? At what point does that kimono become so unrecognizable that it's no longer valuable the way it was previously?
1: That's a really good question is there a way that you could make it so unrecognizable that you wouldn't you know realize where it came from i guess at that point then that will be the the slow the very slow end of a long lifespan of the kimono but what's Mm -hmm. interesting is as i i I probably should have said it in a different way because i'm thinking about it myself so not only are people remaking kimonos into western style clothes or bucket hats or beach purses or whatever it looks like there's still this core group that continues to make the kimono the traditional way um down to every every detail in other words there are some people still making a kimono if you walked in it looked exactly like it would have looked like hundreds of years ago so there's sort of this um um diversification diversification of the craft which i think That's will fascinating protect it mm-hmm.
2: i i recently heard from someone we supported back in the 90s, uh, early stage, e-recruiting vendor, you know, before we, we actually had all these niche applications and all these, you know, buzzy things that we have now. And, and it, it, it has me thinking about what you're talking about here. In terms of 100 years from now, will anyone even remember those things? you know, what, what, what is the enduring quality? Um, And maybe there isn't any, maybe it's a total, you know, rip it apart and, and, and that leave it there. Um, Thoughts on that. And John, you especially have, have covered this particular recruiting technology category with great interest.
0: I'm going to give it to you, Michael. What, what do you think, what do you think about the current the universe of recruiting will be enduring a hundred years from now?
1: That's a really great question. Um, I think whatever it is, there certainly will be elements. Uh, There will be attributes that will make it through, but I, one thing I can, so I can't predict the future. I don't know what they will be, but one thing I can tell you is it will have nothing to do with the funding level of the company, the quality of the annual report, The (laughs) number of consultants involved in the business strategy formulation, um, the way folks are promoted or not promoted, it it really, what I've learned in the kimono uh, world is they exist because they're beautiful and people want them. And they continue to want them because they continue to be beautiful and make people happy. So it's sort of that paradox of the more you want to control having your product be around in a hundred years, unfortunately for you, if that's how you believe it probably has very little to do with you. And it's going to be, how does your consumer base, your kimono wearers, um, w- what's the incentive for them to continue to be able to, to, to buy kimonos in the way that and wear them in the way they want to wear them.
2: Oh, that yeah, just so- Yeah. I'm sorry, John, that, that brings me to a <laughs> whole other place in terms of what was important to the respective employees during a certain period of time, because, you know, you're talking about the kimono being enduring and and being a form of fashion in terms of what's important to people at different, you know, post-World War II, people wanted to come back and get jobs and job security was important. Now we're looking at, Recruiting Gen Z, and they're concerned about, you know, how socially aware and what's your climate tech, you know, your climate change policy. It's it's fascinating how how many different variables, how many different facets you can look at this from. So uh, let me let me step back and turn the floor back over to John. I know we're getting oh, a little tight no, on time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great, Gene. The 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 thing that I see is is the demographic changes in our world are so significant that the way that we move people is going to not be so constrained by um, uh, national boundaries the only way we're going to survive in the united states um, the coming demographic shift is by finding ways to bring a whole lot of people from other places into our country to work and figure out how to manage that. And that means that the, that the um, uh, sort of substrate of recruiting is going to move from who's within 25 miles of the plant to Who's out there in the whole great big wide world who we want to bring to come and enrich the world that we live in, and so so there's a similarity of that, and there are in Washington D.C. there are think tanks emerging to talk about how do you build a global people moving infrastructure, um, so so hundred years from now, people moving between um, chunks of work um which is what recruiting does today that that that'll be the same but the way that we understand the kinds of questions that michael was pointing to which is which is how do you recover from failure and does somebody from um uh, bali uh, recover from failure in the same way that we need to be able to have predictability in our workflow in cleveland um Can we figure out how that match works and how the management process works? I think we're going to get smarter and smarter about that while maintaining this sort of core underlying thing where there's work and we need people to do the work. And that's the equation. But the sources of people are going to change radically.
2: Well, on that note, I'm going to ask Michael to share his parting thoughts because we are at time.
1: This is so much fun. No, it's been. um, Thank you for uh, the opportunity to come and talk a little bit about this. It's just I feel like um, with so much going on in the world, um, there are many complicated solutions that are being proposed and just as quickly sort of abandoned. I think it's sort of fun when I'm able to walk away from this part of where I live and go to the studio and spend time with things that are enduring and um, that people continue to want. And um, I will continue to share whatever insights or lessons I can draw from them um, with this group. It's really, really fun. Thank you.
2: I I do think this is the first instance of the work podcast where we have discussed kimonos. So kudos to you.
0: (laughs) It's always good to be first.
2: (laughs) Michael, do um, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you.
1: Sure. For the scenario planning um, and wargaming uh, future work, you can go to MindemicLab.com, M-I-N-D-E-M-I-C-L-A-B, MindemicLab.com. And if you want to see any of the work that I do, you can go over on Instagram and I'm at MindemicLab.
2: That's exciting. That's exciting. Well, you have been listening to The Work Podcast with my colleague John Sumser, our guest today, Michael Canisto. Thank you so much for listening in. We hope you will listen and like future episodes as well of The Work.